Welcome, everybody. I'm James Putzel, and I'm Professor of Development Studies here at the LSE and Director of the Crisis States Research Center, which is sponsoring this lecture tonight. Um, I'm really happy to welcome you here to the first event of this academic year being held by the Center, and I wanted to tell you that we'll be having other public lectures of this sort throughout the year. Uh, we run a research seminar on Wednesday afternoons, which for those of you who might be studying, doing, undertaking research on topics that are related to the Center's work, the Center is concerned with problems of, of crisis in the developing world, problems of state breakdown and, and state rebuilding after war. We also have a very active publication series, which we invite you to look at on our website. Um, this is the first of a number of events around the United Nations that will be held at the school this autumn. And I was asked to also to remind you about uh, another event that will be taking place on October the 20th, which is uh, uh, titled UN Ideas That Changed the World. Uh, there, there are going to be um, uh, two veterans um, uh, uh, of the United Nations who will be able to provide, I think, some deep insights into this most important of organizations, most troubled of organizations, as we might hear uh, a bit about uh, tonight. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Lise Grand to the LSE. Um, Lise began life as, or adult life as a, in revolutionary politics. Uh, she was deeply involved in, in Palestine um, before she joined the United Nations. Since then, um, and I think she was recruited by the United Nations, she didn't go looking for a job as many of you may be doing when you finish your degrees, uh, she was headhunted by the United Nations to work in Palestine. And since then, she's been twice serving in Sudan, where she's serving now. She's been in uh, Armenia, Tajikistan, Timor, Angola, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. You really know how to pick the places to spend your time. Um, you can imagine that given that experience, Lise is somebody who has been deeply involved in problematic places. Um, we met first in the DRC where Lise was serving with Monarch, um, a very troubled country that's, that's suffered what has been called Africa's first world war, um, has experienced conflict that led to over five million deaths and is very much um, uh, under-recognized even today as a site of potential explosion. Uh, Liz now has been one year in uh, southern Sudan. She's the deputy resident and humanitarian coordinator in the country. Uh, we know and many eyes are on Sudan at the present time. Um, we will be following the situation there during, during this academic year. Um, we hear about Sudan in relationship to Darfur because of the Hollywood-led campaigns around the conflict in that part of the country. But in a way, what seems a much more dire situation is whether or not peace can hold in the South. And I think Lise will be able to talk to us about that. What's the way forward towards a referendum which is supposed to take place 
about the unity of Sudan within two years' time. Does the action of the International Criminal Court towards the President of Sudan harbor hopes for peace, or is it an action by the international community that makes conflict more likely? These are all very dire and pressing questions, and it gives me great pleasure to turn over the floor to Lise Grant to explain them to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Putzel, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you this evening. I need to start off my presentation, though, with two caveats. First of all, although I am a serving United Nations officer, the views that I will be sharing with you this evening are mine and mine alone. They do not necessarily represent the position of the U.N. And secondly, you cannot imagine how intimidating it is when you are a practitioner in the field to come to one of the world's leading capitals and stand in front of 200 of what have to be some of the most intelligent people when you yourself have been out of the academy for more than 30 years. So I would ask that you be kind and generous with me this evening. What I'm going to do is start off by sharing a few introductory thoughts about humanitarian operations and what tends to happen with them in wars, just a few thoughts, and then move much more quickly into what's happening in southern Sudan from a humanitarian perspective. James and I were talking before the presentation. I think our expectation is that that's just meant in a way to set the scene, and then we hope that through the discussion we'll be able to talk much more about political issues and other factors that are affecting the South. As I said, most of my introductory comments will be on the humanitarian situation. Okay, so humanitarian action. Those of us who are humanitarians would like to tell you that we do what we do because we are ideologically committed to the idea of helping. And, yes, that's true. I think most humanitarians are. However, humanitarian action itself is situated within the context of state failure. When states fail, it's the humanitarian agencies that step into the void and provide both household and public goods. Of course, when conditions are normal, it's states that do that. But when states are failing, it's humanitarian agencies that step in and take over the provision of public goods, and particularly, and I want to underline this point, household goods as well. Now, here's what happens. Humanitarian agencies, although they are providing a public good when states fail, they do so on their own terms. Humanitarian agencies do not come under state control, and they base their actions on humanitarian principles. These principles are supposed to stand above politics. Now, what does humanitarian action look like? When humanitarians do public goods, they provide them on the basis of needs, not entitlements. They provide health care, water, education on the basis of needs. Of course, the long struggle for public goods has been primarily a struggle for the entitlement. It doesn't matter who or what you are, it's your right to have that public good. Humanitarian agencies don't work that way. They provide public services because you need them. Some people would consider that a retrogression. Another point is that humanitarians do push the frontiers of what you would define as a public good because they provide direct help at the household level. Of course, most public goods are not household. They're based on categories. But 
humanitarian agencies go further and they actually provide support directly to households. They provide bedding, they provide things like cooking utensils, shelter, and they also help people stand on their feet in terms of their jobs. So it's a much more intrusive form of assistance. This is another very key point. Humanitarian agencies provide mostly free services. Particularly in Africa, after 1991, as you are probably aware, most public goods are fee-based. You've got to pay to go to school. You have to pay for health services. This is the result of a very famous conference in Bamako, in Mali, where African leaders and international organizations, including the United Nations, felt that it was justifiable to force some of the poorest people in the world to pay for basic services. When humanitarians come in, particularly during wars, they tend not to charge for the goods they provide. The next point about humanitarian assistance is that it's delivered through projects, not through state systems. For colleagues who aren't familiar with how humanitarians work, projects are discrete activities that have a defined set of objectives and a defined time period. They are usually community-based and they tend to be very expensive. So if it costs, for example, $1 to educate a child in Kenya through a state system, through a project approach, it can cost as much as four or five. Projects are expensive, they're not cheap. Humanitarian agencies, because they're not states, of course, use that modality usually. Next point to make is that services are provided on the basis of agency policies, not government policies. If you have a progressive or forward-leaning government that believes, for example, let's take Uganda, that health services should be free, but you're an American-based NGO and you happen to think poor people should pay for their health care, that service is provided by the agency on the basis of their policy, not on the policy of the government. And then finally, and I think this is a very critical point, beneficiaries do not usually determine or shape the kind of assistance that they receive from humanitarians. The provision of public goods in these settings is driven by external factors, including the capacity and the ideological orientation of humanitarian agencies. It doesn't reflect the internal struggles over state resources. In the West, the provision of public goods was the result of a very long struggle, led mostly by labor parties, to ensure that everybody in the country got to go to school. Everyone had access to free health care. Humanitarian agencies don't work that way. They're not about, they don't reflect the struggles that these countries have over how the state will function. Key point we wanted to make is that, again, just to say it again, in context of war, public goods are externalized during conflicts. They are provided by humanitarian agencies, not by the states. Okay, so when the war is over, post-conflict states need to regain control over public goods. And very importantly, they need to be seen to do so by their populations. States have to become credible again. And one of the ways in which they are most credible is they provide security and they provide public goods. They need to get back in control of that. In shorthand, this is referred to as the delivery of a peace dividend. States are supposed to be delivering a peace dividend. That's shorthand for regaining control over public goods. The process of re-internalizing public goods, however, is not easy. 
and can be delayed for a whole host of reasons. For example, most conflict states have multiple, absolutely overwhelming security, political, and economic priorities. Regaining control over public goods often comes right at the bottom of the list of all the things they're trying to do. Also in post-conflict countries, insecurity tends to persist well after ceasefires. And, a grim but wholly unshakable fact, it tends to escalate. If you look at the pattern of insecurity once countries have signed peace agreements, particularly at the end of civil wars, you very often see persistent, if not a rise, in insecurity. Why? Because there are spoilers who are intent on disrupting the peace process. The militia fail to brassage or integrate into the armed forces. And inevitably, there are delays in DDR, the disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration of the armed forces. What also tends to happen is that populations have very high expectations. We have seen in some countries, for example, in Angola, where before the Civil War, the Portuguese colonial state provided minimum of public goods. During the lengthy war and the massive humanitarian operation that existed during that war, Populations were given education and held sometimes for the very first time. When the war ended, they expected that their government would continue to do so. Another factor that inhibits the reinternalization of public goods is that agricultural production, particularly in the subsistence sectors, tends to lag behind. That's because there's an absence of inputs and credit. Also, usually, state delivery systems are shattered. State capacity is very strained. Always, there is insufficient public funding. And it's usually linked to the fact that post-conflict states can't capture revenue. This means that it's almost impossible to scale up delivery systems and start delivering public goods. There's usually just not enough money. And then finally, this whole process is affected by the fact that humanitarians either pull out too quickly, leaving a vacuum, or they stay too long and crowd out public action. Now, what can humanitarians do to help states regain control over public goods? They can do some things that help. They can do some things that will inhibit it. I think colleagues who are familiar with the humanitarian world know that for humanitarians, there is one overarching main aim. That's to keep people alive regardless of whether the state has collapsed, whether the state's at war, whether the state is failing, or whether the state is post-conflict. What humanitarians do is try and make sure that people survive. However, in a post-conflict setting, I think many of us would argue that humanitarianism is also about helping to ensure that populations are able to live in dignity, not just survive, but actually able to live their lives at a minimum standard. I'm sure that people are aware that there was a triumphant moment in multilateralism in the year 2000 when all of the world's countries signed the Millennium Declaration. That Millennium Declaration included nine Millennium Development Goals. Right, those goals are the internationally unanimously agreed standard of what dignity is supposed to be. I think one of the most useful things that humanitarians can do when wars are over is to help states provide in a better way the public goods which do ensure this dignity. Now, there's a term, a phrase that's often used by humanitarians. 
and they refer to this as building back better. It's not just about going back to the point where you were before the war, but in fact you build back better. The state systems work better and public goods expand. Okay, so some thoughts about what can help that process. Well, humanitarians can help by channeling resources to repair or establish state delivery systems right away. Not do that later, do that immediately. They can also help the process of re-internalizing public goods by transferring the payrolls of public servants as soon as public administration systems are in place. For example, in southern Sudan, there are about 9,000 health workers, 7,000 of whom are paid for by humanitarian agencies. So getting them off of NGO payrolls and onto the state payrolls helps to ensure that the state controls the public good. We can also help by following public policies, and we can help by making sure that we work under state coordination structures. What doesn't help? Maintaining parallel coordination structures, in other words, the ones that we run ourselves, from which the state is excluded, but also doesn't help is expanding the safety net, expanding public goods at the community level through cost and efficient projects. You've got to get out of projects and get into state delivery systems. Humanitarians have a very hard time doing that. Those are some of my introductory comments. What I'd like to do now is to shift and talk about what's actually happening in southern Sudan. We've started to refer to what's going on in the south as what we call a humanitarian perfect storm. Colleagues who have read Sebastian Younger's famous book on the perfect storm, where he describes the storm that comes along once in a meteorological cycle where all meteorological forces converge to produce a pattern that you see once in 100 years. We're using that metaphor to describe what's happening in the South right now. We have a convergence of three factors that are putting a staggering 40% of the entire population of South Sudan at serious risk. Those three factors are, number one, spiraling intertribal conflict and LRA-related violence. LRA is the acronym for the Lord's Resistance Army. This is a group of Ugandan rebels come from northern Uganda they are very negatively impacting the South. We'll talk more about that. The second factor is a massive food gap. We'll speak more about that. And the third factor that's converging is a budget crisis for the GOS. GOS stands for the government of Southern Sudan. With a historic referendum for the people of Southern Sudan will decide their destiny in 15 months' time, there is a very real, but we hope, avoidable possibility that this humanitarian crisis that we're describing will engulf the South and could jeopardize the comprehensive peace agreement itself. For colleagues who don't know the situation in the South very well, there was a historic civil war. It went through three different phases. It started in 1956 when Sudan became independent. The most recent part of the civil war lasted from 1983 until an astonishing, almost unbelievable peace agreement was signed between the ruling regime in Khartoum, now known as the National Congress Party, the NCP, and the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, the SPLM, in the south. Under the conditions of that comprehensive peace agreement, the CPA, there would be a six-year transition period, during which time the two parties, the NCP and the SPLM, would work to unify Sudan. At the end of that six-year transition period, the people of the South would have the right to go to a referendum to decide whether they wish to remain in a unified Sudan 
or whether they wish to succeed and become independent. The transition period is five years through. We are in the, well, almost the final year. We have 14 more months to go when that historic referendum will be held. For colleagues who are not following this out very carefully, there are recent opinion polls which suggest that more than 90% of the population in the South at this stage, if asked to vote, would vote for succession. Back to the humanitarian perfect storm. The first vector I discussed was spirally intertribal violence. Now, Southern Sudan, like many pastoralist and peasant-based societies, has a history of intertribal conflict, but what we're seeing now is far more intense and of a very different nature than in previous years. Since January, more than 2,000 people have been killed in intertribal conflict, and a staggering 332,000 people have been displaced this year alone. If you're following the statistics for Darfur, you will realize that this is far worse than what's going on in Darfur. Far worse. We estimate, unfortunately, that by the end of this year, we will probably have more than 400,000 people newly displaced. These are the kinds of levels that you saw at the height of the Civil War. We're five years into the peace agreement. Much more worrying since March of this year, there have been seven brutal massacres involving hundreds of victims, the overwhelming majority women and children. They are concentrated in two of the South's ten states, Jonglei and Upper Nile. These massacres are intertribal massacres. This map shows you where the problems are. Everything in yellow is southern Sudan. There are ten states in the south. And these red splotches are where most of the major violence has occurred. If you look at the numbers, you can see that 122,000, that's Jonglei State. That's the state I was mentioning earlier. You then see, if you look upwards, Upper Nile, there's 58,000 displaced. It's also an epicenter of violence. And then if you look over to the left, you'll see the 76,000. That's the state of Western Equatoria, and this is where the Lord's Resistance Army is very active. Now, what's going on is that one tribal attack leads to another, resulting in a spiral of reprisals. Now, in southern Sudan, because there has been intertribal violence for a long time, there are lots of traditional methods for dealing with it. They are all proving inadequate. Peace conferences, ceasefire commissions, intertribal this is and that, nothing's working. Nobody is able to get a grip on this. Far more worrying, neither the government, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, state governments, the church, civil society, politicians, are all struggling to understand this, and they certainly don't have the resources to deal with it. I cannot tell you how many times I have spoken with leading members of the government at both the GOS and the state level who have said, we don't know what this is. Far more worrying, you talk to members of the church, one of the institutions that has the deepest reach in southern Sudan, they don't know, nobody knows what's going on. Just can't explain it. The southern Sudan police forces are, as they are in most post-conflict settings, undertrained, insufficient in number, and under-equipped. They can't deal with public order. What this means is that the government is being forced to use the army to intervene, something it does not want to do. 
It's afraid of further militarization. One of the key problems that a post-conflict state faces is you've got to get the Army into barracks. They need to get out of public order, and the police need to take over that function. In the South, the government of southern Sudan was committed to that. They knew that's what it was about. What they didn't want to do was to use the Army to deal with public order, with intertribal violence, because that was a continuation of the militarization of public space. They thought that was the wrong thing to do. When the first massacre started in March, the government and the Army did nothing. They refused to intervene for this reason. After the fourth massacre, they were forced to intervene. And the SPLA is now deploying preemptively in areas where reprisals are expected. Unfortunately, the SPLA, in all of its last preemptive deployments, has been slaughtered. Lord's Resistance Army, one of the more, um, uh, wow, I don't even know how to describe the LRA. One of the most difficult, intractable militia problems uh, remaining in Africa, uh, certainly one of the most brutal, uh, rogue militia group of bandits any of us have ever seen. They um, were forced out of northern Uganda a number of years ago. They went into eastern Democratic Republic of Congo and southern Sudan. A series of efforts were made to reach a political deal. I mean, sometimes you just cannot reach a political deal with organizations like the LRA, and in this case it failed. And so what happened was that the governments of Uganda, the government of the DRC, and the government of southern Sudan agreed that there had to be a military option. Couldn't talk to these people. No political compromise was possible. There had to be a military-coordinated attack against them. What's happened is that the LRA, in response to that, has split into lots of different bands and is running all over South Sudan, creating a huge set of problems. Since the end of last year, 80,000 people have been displaced as a result. We have refugees that are coming in from the eastern DRC. Most of the attacks are led, as I was saying, by these small bands of militia. They tend to occur in clusters. You'll get seven or eight of them all at once. The UN and the NGOs have mounted a major humanitarian operation. We're targeting about 200,000 people in western Equatoria. However, insecurity is simply overwhelming, and I think we're going to have to start closing down many of these operations. I don't think we can keep them open. Protection needs are very complex. What the LRA does is they'll go into little tiny towns and they'll take the women and children, they abduct them, particularly the children, um, and they kill the rest. Let me just say a few words about um, humanitarian action in these contexts. You may be aware that Sudan actually has two United Nations peacekeeping <coughs> operations, not one but two. There is one that covers the north and the south. It was established after the Conference of Peace Agreement was signed. It's called UNMIS. That's who I work for. There is a separate peacekeeping operation just for Darfur called UNAMIN. Both of those operations are billion-dollar operations. The one for Darfur costs a billion dollars a year, and the one for North and South Sudan costs a billion dollars. We have a lot of Blue Helmets troops on the ground, a lot of them. In both UNAMID and in UNMIS, the troops have what's called a Chapter 7 mandate. That means that they are allowed to take offensive action to protect civilians under imminent threat. There is no stronger mandate given by the UN Security Council. In the case of Sudan, both 
peacekeeping operations have that mandate. You would therefore expect reasonably, if you are a public citizen of the world, that you would see the UN taking aggressive action to protect civilians. I will say simply the following. In the case of Western Equatoria, the difference between the LRA taking over that state and the LRA not taking over Western Equatoria are humanitarians. Humanitarians, we are running 19 separate operations along the border, anchoring down the populations. Why is that important? Because what the LRA is trying to do is to push populations away from the border so that they have a no-man's land that they can do what they wanted. This is what militias do. The difference between them succeeding and them failing are humanitarians, not peacekeepers. Humanitarians. In fact, just, I'll just give you a small anecdote. Often in peacekeeping, humanitarians are called skirts. It's meant to be a derogatory term. Skirts are out there holding the line on the border through these operations. It'd be nice to see some peacekeepers there. Now, here, if you look at Western Equatoria, you can see where all of the LRA attacks have been. That was vector one for the humanitarian perfect storm. Vector two is a massive food deficit. And again, this is not atypical. Very often when wars end, everyone thinks it's all going to start going the right way. Very often it doesn't. It goes the wrong way. If you look at the evidence, you see that in half of all post-conflict settings, there are food gaps, if not pre-famine situations. We are facing that in the South. Now, the food gap in the South is linked to a combination of things. Number one, the rains failed this year. Number two, we have massive insecurity, which we've discussed. Number three, trade has been disrupted as a result of insecurity. And we have extremely high food prices related to the agricultural crisis from two years ago. What that means is that 1.5 million people are facing severe food insecurity. This is 300,000 people more than we originally projected. The UN often uses anodyne terms like severe food insecurity to describe serious hunger and starvation. If I were a journalist, I wouldn't be calling this severe food insecurity. We're talking about people right now that are eating one meal of greens every two days. That's what that means. Their families are eating one meal of greens, no carbohydrates, no protein, one meal of greens every two to three days. That's what we mean when we say severe food insecurity. It's affecting five of the South's ten states. That's half of the South. In July, the situation was so bad that the humanitarian agencies went out and did an assessment. Once a year, we go out and we assess what the food situation is. We normally do that in October. July, we had to go back out and reassess it. What we found was that in very hard-hit areas, the global threshold for malnutrition, there are parts of the humanitarian world that are very cynical. We have definitions of what's very severe, serious, and just to be something to be worried about. The emergency threshold is your highest threshold. It means, basically, people are dying. Now, we have a situation in places like a wheel where we're twice, twice the emergency threshold. Twice the emergency <laughs> threshold. As I was explaining, the first harvest in the South has failed. What that means is that the traditional hunger gap is extended. 
people who aren't familiar with how the harvest season works in the eastern part of Africa, there are usually three harvests. What happens is everybody plants. When July comes, they start running out of food. They go down to one meal per day from early July until mid-August. It's called the hunger gap. In mid-August, that first harvest is supposed to come. That breaks the hunger gap. You have short-strain sorghum that starts being produced, and that keeps the families together until mid-October when the big harvest comes, and then you've got another harvest that comes in December. What's happened in southern Sudan is the first harvest failed. So the hunger gap isn't from 1st of July until mid-August. It's until October and November. The human costs are almost unimaginable. As I said, starting in September, destitute families who had been surviving on one meal per day are down to one meal every two days. By October, right now, these families, which haven't been eating properly since the 1st of July, are on one meal every three days, and it's greens. It's all they're eating. We need a lot of food, 50,000 metric tons, that's a lot. Most of it is required for the hardest hit state, Jongle. We've got a million people that need help, half a million people of whom need supplementary and therapeutic feeding. You know, that's when you give kids drops simply to survive. This shows you where it's worst hit. The brown areas are the worst areas, red areas are second worst. You can see it's spread all over the south. Now, what's happening to destitute families? In order to cope with the hunger gap, destitute families or poor families will take whatever livestock they have and they'll sell it for sorghum during this period. When the terms of trade, however, for livestock and grain start going the wrong way, destitute families are no longer able to access the market. When we said there's high food price, this is what we're talking about. In January in Well, that's a major town in the south, a family could buy 1,200 kilograms of sorghum by selling an adult bull of cow. Today, six months later, they can only buy 400 kilograms. Terms of trade are working against them. So a lot of poor families are being pushed out of the food market. Need a lot of money. For colleagues who don't know about how much a humanitarian operation costs, Simply to deal with the food gap right now, we need $57 million now. We've been able to get in the past month $24 million. We've got $33 million to go. Third vector that's affected the situation in the South is the GOS budget crisis. The IMF says that there's no other country in the world that has been, country, sorry, no other government in the world that has been worse affected by the um, global meltdown as southern Sudan. We say certainly in Africa, no other government was worse affected. They lost 40% of their budget. 40% of their budget, they lost. And this is catastrophic. No government can survive that. You can see here from the chart how much they had in 2008, what they got in 2009. Now, what I'd like to do is to share with you what the implication of that budget crisis is for public goods. We refer to the public goods that are provided by humanitarian agencies as the safety net. 
that safety net is in real serious trouble. Since the signing of the CPA, humanitarian organizations are still providing 85% of all of the health services in the South. So the bulk of public goods are still being provided by humanitarians. What was supposed to happen is that the government of Southern Sudan was going to take those over. They were going to internalize public goods. They were going to take responsibility for them. They are unable to do that, however, because they don't have the money. The first thing they were supposed to do this year was take over the payroll for the health workers. It was going to transfer from NGOs to the government. Can't do that. No money for it. Here's the problem. NGOs and the UN agencies depend upon donors to fund them. Donors, thinking that the GOSS was going to take over the payroll, are stopping the funding of the NGOs and the agencies. A big vacuum. Now, you would expect that donors would be flexible enough to respond. Huh. No. Everybody knows this is a problem. Everybody's worried. But the fact is that 1,000 health workers currently being paid by 22 NGOs are going to have no more money in two months. Out of the 560-odd health facilities run by NGOs, a staggering 150 of them are going to close. And we can't get the donor community as a whole to shift fast enough to re-engage. Equally worrying, we're about to face a three-month gap where there won't be a single anti-malarial or antibiotic in the entire region of the South. And again, it's because the funding for that, which was supposed to be online, isn't there. And these massive humanitarian operations simply are not flexible enough to step in and take that over. Okay, so we have the humanitarian perfect storm affected by these three vectors. Humanitarian agencies are doing the best they can, but they have just huge constraints. Right now, there are 27 separate operations going on simultaneously in the South. When we planned for 2009, we thought there would be 10. We planned and budgeted for 10. There are 27 right now. Almost all recovery and development work, the bulk of it, put on hold. When a humanitarian crisis erupts, it just elbows out everything else. All of the good plans we had for helping the government stand on its feet and increasingly expand its authority and take on development, all put on hold. In addition to which, there are, in fact, only a, a handful of big NGOs that can expand and take on additional tasks. There's a big lag between when a crisis hits and when assistance can be provided at the scale that's needed. In addition to the lack of capacity, we don't have enough money because it goes to Darfur. Remember, that's not an official UN position, that's mine. And access is a nightmare. Okay, partners in the South, humanitarians, in order to keep public goods going for 2009, they requested $400 million. They got $59 million. Okay, Darfur asks for a billion. It gets a billion. Darfur needs a billion, they get it. The South needs 400 million, they get 60. With funding at such low levels, what the humanitarian agencies did in June was to sit down and do what we call drastic prioritization. We said, what's the minimum necessary to keep the safety net in place until the end of the year? We looked at that number, and we said, that's not good. 
The donors won't give it to us. We cut again. We call that drastic prioritization. We came up with $85 million. We did that in June. Then the food gap hit in July. We had to add another $57 million to it. The story is between now and the end of the year, somebody's got to cough up $120 million. Otherwise, a lot of people aren't going to make it in the South. $120 million. In the best of times, agencies in southern Sudan only are able to get to 40% of the people they need. For colleagues who aren't familiar with the South, it is one of the most difficult areas on the face of the planet. There are only 200 kilometers of paved road in all of the South. That's it. No more. Getting around is exceptionally difficult. And for four to six months of the year, the roads, which aren't tarmac, which is all of them except for 200 kilometers, you can't use them. This means that hundreds of thousands of people are cut off for as much as half of the year. And for us, escalating violence this year has meant that it's even more difficult to get to the places we need to get to. Having said that, humanitarian agencies, credit here goes to the non-governmental organizations and members of the UN family have done what they can. A lot of children have received therapeutic and supplementary feeding. Half of the kids we wanted to vaccinate, we've been able to. There are more than 10,000 water points now in the south, 300 of which simply this year alone. And the government of southern Sudan, despite its back being against the wall, has done an unbelievable job trying, even with the budget crisis, to do what it can. Now, the humanitarian perfect storm in the south is far worse than it need be, in part because it comes atop a years of marginalization, which have resulted in some of the worst social statistics in the world. If the referendum were held today and the people of southern Sudan were to vote for independence, the South would be the second poorest country in the world. The statistics are as follows. 90% of the population survives on less than a dollar a day. As we already said, 1.5 million are hungry. One in seven women who become pregnant will die of pregnancy-related complications. This is the highest maternal mortality rate in the world. More women die during pregnancy in southern Sudan than anywhere else. There are only 10 certified midwives in all of the South. A staggering 92% of women cannot read or write. 92%. For colleagues who follow development, you know there are only two variables that correlate across all time periods and regimes with development. One of them is literacy, and the other is electricity. There is one teacher for every 1,000 primary school students. 97% of the population has no access to sanitation. Polio, which was eradicated from southern Sudan during the Civil War, has come back. And some of the deadliest and most debilitating diseases in the world, there are 16 of them. 15 of them are prevalent in southern Sudan. The statistics in the south are truly scary. We call them scary statistics. For us, there are two that stand out. A 15-year-old girl in southern Sudan has a higher chance of dying in childbirth than she does of finishing school. And more women die during childbirth, and fewer children are immunized than anywhere else. We refer to that as the death trap. More women are dying in childbirth, and fewer children are being immunized than anywhere else. Despite the legacy of marginalization, there are, in fact, 
few places where so much has been achieved in such a short period of time with such limited resources. What the Southern Sudanese have achieved is breathtaking. The government of Southern Sudan was established from scratch. What usually happens in a post-conflict country is that government systems which had collapsed during the war, they get dusted off, repaired, money pumps through them, and they start to function again. That's called recovery. And there are a lot of experts in the world that know how to do that. That's not what Southern Sudan is. There was nothing to recover from. This government was built from scratch. It is now functioning in all ten of the states. There are more than 30 ministries, a number of commissions, 21 commissions, all working. It's a stunning achievement. The ceasefire between the National Congress Party and the SPLM, despite direct skirmishes in Abia and another town called Malakal, is still holding. The power and wealth-sharing elements of the CPA are still being implemented. The boundaries of Abia, a very contentious town that is actually north of the border, but we'll have a referendum to decide whether it stays in the north or the south. The boundaries of that very contentious area have been determined. Half of the trunk roads have been repaired. They're not tarmacked, but they're repaired and demined. Measles, which was an epidemic, has been reduced. The number of children in primary school has been quadrupled. Two million people have come back. 5,000 health workers have been trained. And 350,000 households have gotten agricultural supplies. So again, despite all the constraints and all the bad news, absolutely stunning set of achievements. Now, what's going to happen? Last quarter of 2009 is going to be really a mess the next three months. We're going to have more insecurity linked to the LRA and intertribal conflicts. Floods are very likely. The meteorological projections are that having suffered from the lack of rains for the first harvest, we're now just about to get floods. Health facilities operated by NGOs, we talked about that, are going to start shutting down. And as we've already mentioned, a quarter of a million people are facing starvation. The consensus is that next year in 2010, in the lead-up to the referendum, Next year, there are supposed to be elections, and at the end of those elections, in January 2011, is the referendum. We've got one year. That next year will almost certainly be worse than this one. And security is going to remain a major problem. We expect that similar numbers of people will be displaced. We know that food insecurity is going to persist. We've just finished the crop assessment for 2010. In the best-case scenario, the harvest or the crop production is 30% less than this year. Next case, 40% to 50%. Third case, we could be down by 50 to 70%. <coughs> Public goods will almost certainly not expand, and humanitarian agencies were just overstretched and underfunded. So what are we going to do about all this? We're going to try and be prepared for emergencies. We're going to get out there and save lives. We're going to try and maintain the delivery of public goods and then start to move more aggressively into helping some of the most destitute households from slipping further and further into crisis. The way you do that, and colleagues who are watching very carefully how to get families out of uh, poverty very quickly, there are some tried and true things you can do that work everywhere at all times. Number one, inject households with cash. You know the Prodera program in Latin America. It was started in the 1970s. It has astonishing results. Anywhere Prodera has been implemented, the level of destitution among families goes down dramatically. In Brazil right now, President Lula, a trade unionist, has introduced something very similar. The results are staggering. Families are being paid 
cash stipends if they send their kids to school and they get them vaccinated. Poverty levels are dropping in major cities throughout that country. We're looking at trying to do something very similar in southern Sudan. The other way that you help families stay out of destitution is you give their kids school feeding. You feed the kids in school. Two things you can do. The results are impressive. My final slide to tie us back into the earlier argument about public goods. In the case of Southern Sudan, the opportunity that we might have to build back better during the post-conflict transition has been completely overtaken by this humanitarian perfect storm. Humanitarians now in the South have absolutely no choice in the lead-up to the referendum. We have to simply concentrate on saving lives and doing everything that we can to prevent a catastrophe. And the development of the state, their reinternalization of public goods, their further development, unfortunately, because of this perfect storm, all of that is on hold. Thank you. We have um, about 45 minutes, if we need it, for, uh, for questions. And I'm going to ask you to please try to keep your intervention to a question. I, I want to kick it off just to, because, uh, Lise, you talked about the, this mission of building back better. And what I really want to know is why is, why is the United Nations not doing better? What, what's blocking it? I mean, we read about integrated military units that were supposed to be formed with, with forces from the north and the south actually just lined up against each other and, and, and engaged in active you know, violence between them. Um, we, you spoke about Western Equatoria, where the peacekeepers are simply not there. The humanitarians are somehow trying to defend the population from the LRA, etc. You know, why, why is this happening? Is this because of the member states not empowering the United Nations? Is this a lack of funds? What's, what's the problem? Should I collect some other? Yeah. Okay. Gentleman here. Lisa, brilliant presentation. I have to give you applause for that. Um, I'm Sun Sunnis myself personally, and a lot of the stuff you said rings true. However, it's important to actually, um, we are heading towards an inevitable catastrophe in a period of 14 months. And I want to find out how do we balance the point of being tough on humanitarian issues as being tough on the causes of humanitarian issues, and therefore to prevent them stemming up initially. What could be done towards that direction in the short period that's approaching? Thank you. gentleman here. Uh, you, you mentioned the LRA. Could you tell us uh, what uh, L and R and A stand for and which countries or groups could be behind the, this group and is it in the area where there is oil or uh, not, you know, the sort of the political factors behind it. Thank you. Do we have a microphone up at top? So, is there a microphone up top? No? Okay, just shout out your question. I don't want to exclude them. Do you think that the, the last, that the last 
start with those questions, and then I come back for more rounds. In answering these, I'm going to stress again that these are my personal views, and particularly, James, for you in reflecting on why the U.N. doesn't do better. Yeah, that's, yeah, why don't we? You know, there are people in the U.N. that really feel that we get put upon. You know, when the international community can't figure out how to solve a problem, it dumps it on the U.N. When, at the end of the Cold War, you started to see the mass failure of states, particularly in Africa, but also in Central Asia and in other areas in the Caucasus, you know, no one knew what to do about it, and so the U.N. kept getting dumped with this. And what ended up happening was the U.N. peacekeeping operations, which were originally conceived during the Cold War as monitoring and verification mechanisms. When parties finally stopped fighting each other, what was supposed to happen is that the blue helmets were supposed to go in and monitor and verify the ceasefire lines between them. That's what peacekeeping was. Now, what happened is that at the end of the Cold War, states are failing, nobody can figure out what to do about it, so suddenly the U.N. was called upon to try and deal with this. And so we ended up with taking these original peacekeeping operations, which were simply soldiers monitoring and verifying, and asking the peacekeepers to suddenly do state building, consolidate peace and state build. Now, that's really hard to do. And I think that the U.N. has struggled, James, to figure out how to do that best. We are often given mandates which are so complex that even, you know, highly efficient and really well-organized and politically empowered colonial regimes couldn't figure out how to do it, let alone the United Nations ripped apart by political interests with very dysfunctional administrative systems and so forth. So what's expected of the U.N., what we're mandated to do and what we're able to do, there's still a very big gap between them. Having said that, I think that there are some things which the U.N. is learning as we take on these increasingly or are given these increasingly difficult mandates. The two most famous ones are the ones in DRC and the one in Sudan, where we are literally asked essentially to do what any one of us would recognize as state building. One of the things that hampers us from doing a better job of it is that across the board we tend to get one thing very wrong, and that is that the international community and the U.N. doesn't focus on security sector reform early enough or adequately enough. You know, when wars end, you've got to figure out what to do with the ex-combatants. You've got to reform the military and you've got to do something with the ex-combatants. Either you integrate them into a reformed military structure or you demobilize them. That bundle of issues is dirty, difficult, under-resourced, under-theorized. You know, within the UN there are, and the international community, there are a lot of experts on humanitarian action, a lot of development experts, crowds of people that are experts in recovery. Where there are very few experts is in security sector reform, SSR. It's essential. Nothing can go forward without it. And yet it is probably the biggest lacunae, not only for peacekeeping operations, but for the way that all of us are collectively dealing with state failure and post-conflict. That's one of the reasons why I think the UN struggles to implement the kinds of mandates that we have in Sudan. In terms of protection, yeah, ooh, okay. 
This is a really complex issue, and I'm going to, again, stress that I'm speaking in my personal capacity here. You know, protection of civilians when you have a limited number of peacekeepers, you have a relatively large set of oppositional forces, and you've got a massive population. If you look at the numbers, it's going to be a difficult thing to do under any circumstances. Now, within peacekeeping, you tend to find that there are two basic approaches to protection. We're going to call one forward-leaning and mobile, and we'll refer to the other one as superior and static. You'll see what I mean by this in a moment. One of the ways that you can deal with a huge population spread out, lots of disruptive forces, and only a few peacekeepers, is to keep the peacekeepers very mobile. Have them be mobile, move around, and take deterrent action. Okay, that would be, for example, what Manuk does. Manuk is the name of the peacekeeping operation in the DRC. Their peacekeepers are very mobile, moving all around all the time, using deterrence as a way of trying to protect civilians against militia that want to hurt them. Now, the way that other peacekeepers would respond is to say, we will not take action unless if we have a superiority of forces. If you know that there are 2,000 armed militia that are going to attack this community, you don't intervene unless if you have 8,000. You have to have a superiority of resources by a factor of four. It's conventional military doctrine. Okay, now, you can imagine a situation in southern Sudan where we have 10,000 peacekeepers, military, of which only a handful of those are actually boots on the ground. You know, of course, in military operations, the bulk of them are doing maintenance and, you know, looking after team sites, and they're not really out there taking aggressive action. Out of those who are available for deployment, if you're trying to get a superiority of a factor of four, you're almost never going to get it. That's a very static deployment model. And in peacekeeping operations where we have a static deployment model, our ability to do protection effectively is very compromised. So I think within the UN, what you're seeing is that in some cases, the peacekeeping operation is moving into a forward-leaning, deterrent-based mobile deployment, doing much better on protection, as opposed to you know, peacekeeping operations where there's a more static, more conventional approach. So that's part of why, in some cases, we're doing better, and in some cases, we're not doing as well. In terms of the very important question um, about you know, what can we do to address the root causes? I think this is what's so frustrating about the humanitarian perfect storm, is that, you know, when you're dealing with people that are starving, it just elbows out everything. You deal just with that. And in terms of addressing, for example, the fact that we don't have enough credit into destitute families who are affected by the terms of trade that I was describing, you know, for us to get a credit program into those families in time, to keep them in the productive cycle for this next year, we're not going to make it. Our operations, to be frank, to be very honest, are usually not agile enough to do that. So when you get overwhelmed by a humanitarian tsunami, the ability to simultaneously address it and work on the root causes is something which we have managed in some other operations, but it is very difficult to do. And my sense is that in the case of Southern Sudan, we'll be disappointed in that regard. We'll be focused so much on simply dealing with the immediate causes. In terms of the LRA, that stands for Lord's Resistance Army. I'm not an expert on it, so I'll tell you what I know. 
uh, but I would defer to other colleagues who know more about it. It um, is a militia group, uh, a psychological militia group coming out of northern Uganda. Um, they have been active in the region for a number of years. Um, I understand that their ideological content has shifted quite a bit, that they originally started off as a millennial movement, a religious movement, um, but now they seem to be much more concerned about simply staying alive. They have moved their bases of operation, as I mentioned, from northern Uganda into eastern DRC. They are now in the Central African Republic. They were in one part of southern Sudan until several years ago when they shifted out into the DRC, and they're now trying to come back into Western Equatoria, which is why we're seeing all of the activity there. If I may, the Lord's Resistance Army is regarded as one of the most brutal and difficult militia on the African continent. There are a lot of us that would like to see them dealt with. Political options, as I said, seem not to be on the table. Major efforts have been made in recent years to reach a political compromise with them, and none of that has worked, which is why there's a military effort underway. In terms of the question on um, the food deficit, I think that, that there were, as I was saying, a variety of factors which contributed to the food gap. Very importantly, insecurity was a causal factor. The fact, however, that populations are in need of food now is going to feed into increasing insecurity. So again, this analogy of a perfect storm where factors are converging and multiplying the impact, I think you're seeing that with the food deficit and gap now. The population is in severe stress, it's going to contribute to insecurity. One of the seven massacres I refer to is directly correlated with that. This was a population based in a town called Kobo in Jongle. What had happened was that the displaced persons in Kobo, they had been the victims of an earlier massacre. The UN was unable to bring in food to this area. We couldn't fly it in fast enough, and the river corridor was cut off as a result of another massacre. So the population in Okobo was starving. They pushed out of Okobo into areas controlled by another tribe. What were they doing? They were looking for food. They were fishing. And in retaliation, that tribe massacred 186 of them in early August. So there you can see a population which had been made a victim because of a massacre, searching for food that are again attacked. This is the kind of vicious cycle that you're seeing in the South. Thanks. I'll take some more questions. Uh, Gabby Hesselbein. Thank you very much for your wonderful presentation of what is going on and of all the dilemmas you are facing, you as a representative of the UN. And this is um, the capacity I would like uh, you to, to ask my question. Um, since about 15 years, the UN is dealing with humanitarian catastrophes in uh, countries that experience state failure. Um, so this seems to be a very big issue to deal with, and I would like you to say something about the lessons learned. My suspicion is that one of the recipes of the international community is go to elections as soon as possible. Um, you know Congo better than I do, but uh, that's an example where all the prerequisites for elections didn't work, 
Um, and the elections themselves have brought nothing to Congo since uh, two and a half or three years. So what are the lessons learned um, from states falling apart? And a short but difficult second uh, aspect of the problem is anybody thinking right now in the middle of the catastrophe about future growth, future creation of wealth in order to provide a future government of the Sudan with the means to deal with it? Thank you. This gentleman here. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for your presentations. Um, Fascinating. Um, you drew the comparison a number of times between the situation in Darfur and the situation in southern Sudan. You said once, I think, that Darfur asks for a billion dollars, it gets it. Southern Sudan, not at all. I was just wondering, what would it take politically, um, I suppose on the donor country end, for, uh, for the situation in southern Sudan to change? I mean, you tell us that the situation is now... Uh, easily as or far more dire than that in Darfur. What's going wrong here? Is it simply that a group of Hollywood actors started a campaign about Darfur, or is there some underlying fundamental difference between the two that is stopping the donor community respond to southern Sudan? This question from the front up. And in this round, let me just take one more. Yeah, you. I'll pass you the mic. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Lise, for your wonderful presentation. My question links slightly to the gentleman before. Um, this afternoon, I was in one of my classes, and we had an extensive discussion about with a colleague who'd been in, working for DFID in southern Sudan. Um, and he gave us the impression that the government which you, you said had made wonderful achievements, and I, on an initial view, I guess would agree with that in the short time that they've had as a government. But we also had the impression that they were functioning very badly in other ways um, in terms of corruption, and that um, I really wanted to get your thoughts on um, oil and the fact that they're actually receiving, or I had the impression from what we learned today that they were receiving a lot of money now. Um, and there's such a shortage of funds that I wanted to know whether you thought, um, or how much is it being pursued, you know, contain, trying to capture this money in a way that will really be beneficial? Because it seems absurd that these statistics are coming out when they're signing, obviously, very lucrative deals and receiving a lot of oil money. So, yeah, I'd like to hear about that. Thank you. Um, Gabby, thank you for the, the question on, you know, what lessons we're learning. I think that you, you correctly characterized that the main aim of peacekeeping operations in a post-conflict setting is to get to elections. And then once the elections are held, we leave and, you know, other actors assist um, the newly democratized government to go forward. I mean, that's the kind of trope. That's the, the conceit of, of what we do. What's become very clear, however, is that in a number of operations where, you know, the UN left as soon as the elections were over, we've had to re-engage. You know, Haiti is a very good example, Cote d'Ivoire, 
East Timor. We left. Elections had been held. We declared victory. And then things went belly up, and we had to reengage. It's been as a result of that that you've seen um, the UN peacekeeping um, department do very serious reflection about whether or not our emphasis on elections is the right one. And I think your suggestion is, you know, it's probably not. What is emerging as a, as a new area of focus within peacekeeping, what you're beginning to hear us say is there have to be fundamental steps taken toward the first stage of security sector reform. There have to be steps taken toward the restructuring of rule of law. And that at a certain point, when these first initial fundamental steps have been taken, then peacekeepers should leave. Okay, that's the emerging course of action, or what we in military terms call center of gravity. But this is a debate that's happening in real time. So within peacekeeping doctrine, we are debating these things right now. Now, it's not an unproblematic debate. The advantage of getting out when there's an election is that it's a clear milestone. We stay there, get ready for the elections, help, 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 elections are held, we get to go. Clear demarcation of when we're there and when we're not there. The problem with we stay for fundamental part of SSR, what's fundamental about SSR? When do we draw that line? When do we get to go? Same thing with rule of law. When is there enough rule of law in Haiti that we can leave? Now, we refer to the definition of that red line as benchmarking. UN peacekeeping operations now are doing benchmarking. And what the benchmarks are supposed to do is draw the line. When we reach this benchmark in rule of law, we can go. When we reach this benchmark in SSR, we can go. Now, if you read the benchmarking, it's all over the place. Because, as I said, this is a debate that's happening in real time. We are grappling with defining what that line is. What I think you'll see is that in two to three years' time, Gabby, there will be a codification of this debate within the UN. It's not happening now. We're still struggling with it. The first UN mission that benchmarked was Liberia. We're benchmarking right now in Sudan. DRC benchmarked last year. So you're watching missions coming online, trying to define how much security sector reform is enough for us to go. But it is not something for which a consensus of practice has emerged at this stage. But it's clearly something we need to do. And again, the two areas that we recognize as our biggest lacuna are one I mentioned in response to James's question, security sector reform, and the other is rule of law. Again, the problem, of course, is those of us who have experience in security sector reform know that it takes, there's a famous RAND study that shows it takes about 30 years to reform an army. Reforming the rule of law sector is even longer. You can't expect a peacekeeping operation. You can't expect the member states of the UN to pay for peacekeeping operation for that length of time. So the question then becomes, out of that 20 or 30 year process, what are the first steps that have to happen before we can leave? It's a very interesting part of peacekeeping right now, and you're seeing practice and doctrine evolve literally as we, as we speak. Um, on the question of, of future growth, Gabby, you know, the, there are, of course, um, experts in development working in southern Sudan who are working with the government to define what the vectors and trajectories of economic growth should be. That's positive. But I have to be frank here that at the moment, with the national question looming, with the destiny literally about to be decided, that overwhelms and elbows out 
almost everything else. And the other thing that overwhelms and elbows out everything else is the humanitarian crisis. So yes, there are people within the government, within the international community, that are focusing, for example, on what needs to happen with the major grids, the electricity grid and the road grid, preconditions for growth, that are focusing on trade flows, that are focusing on the investment framework, that are trying to get the government to develop an agricultural policy. I mean, all this discussion is going on. But that doesn't mean that that's the important thing that the government is focusing on. The important thing that the Southern Sudanese are focused on right now, of course, is the national question. It's the question of their destiny. On the issue of um, politically, what would it take? Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts. You know, Southern Sudan was defined as a recovery problem. And what you get defined as shapes what kind of people come in and how much money you get. Hey, if you get defined as a stabilization problem like Eastern DRC is, you get a lot of people that are experts on security sector reform and extension of state authority, and you get buckets of money that come after that. If you're defined as recovery, that's the last thing you want to be defined at. You get you know, lots of recovery people, which are relatively junior in the aid hierarchy, and you don't get much money. Okay, we were defined as a recovery problem. What you want to be defined as is, oh my God, a humanitarian catastrophe. Then, you know, lots of people show up with big buckets of money. Or you want to be defined as a stabilization problem. That's not what Southern Sudan was called. Um, a large part of the leadership of these operations is to change that story. Call the story something else. Call it a humanitarian perfect storm and see if you can get money lined up behind it. That's part of it. You're, I think, absolutely correct with your insight that there are political forces which shape what something gets called. You know, you can have massacres of hundreds of people. For example, the first massacre that occurred in March, probably 750 people were killed in a 36-hour period. We didn't make one news channel anywhere except in Sudan. Didn't make any news channel. You can have a situation where, in a neighboring country, five people get killed, you headline BBC. So, you know, how you, how you deal with the press and shape the press, you know, is an ongoing challenge for any of us who are in, you know, countries that are not yet on the top of the agenda. Again, I think what many of us try and do is shape what the story is about the place and see if we can, uh, through that, get more resources and to deal with it. In terms of the politics of the, the South, I think as we move closer to the referendum, uh, what you are seeing is um, renewed international attention on the final stages of the transition. Everybody wants this to work. And, and I do mean that. I mean, I think that there are spoilers, yes. But I think in general the humanitarian, no, sorry, the international community is united in wanting you know, the CPA to conclude in a positive way. So it's, you know, you also want to channel it. I mean, I'm shameless about saying to donors, you know, your CPA is in trouble, you get more money. All right, so it's an ongoing struggle to define a problem in such a way that the buckets of cash get where you need it to go. On the question of the Chinese influence, um, of course, I think many of us are aware that China is increasingly engaged in Africa, particularly in countries where there are resources that they need for their own economic growth. Uh, they have been very active in places like Congo, 
They are playing a very engaged role in Sudan. In general terms, Chinese, I'm going to, if I may, summarize. It's quite a complex position for them, but I think you can make a general statement that what they are primarily interested in is securing necessary resources. That does not necessarily mean that they are always very actively engaged in the politics of the country where they're working. They can often be a very welcome presence for host countries. They are, in, for example, the case of Angola, they were very generous in extending a credit line against future oil revenues. Certainly the government of southern Sudan would be very open to a similar kind of arrangement. Since many governments or donors are unwilling to provide direct budget support, and China is prepared to extend very concessional credit conditions, I think that makes them, in many cases, a very favored partner. Certainly if I were in the Goss' shoes, I would be looking for that kind of a partnership. On the question of corruption, yeah. Okay. I'm going to say something really unpopular at this point. And we have a colleague, Liz Gere, who was the head of the joint donor team in Sudan, a very beloved colleague who has also spent a long time grappling with the corruption issue in southern Sudan. Let me say why this is an unpopular statement. Right now the government of southern Sudan is dealing with a major scandal related to their strategic food stocks. Basically what happened is in a couple of their ministries, contracts were entered into for which there was insufficient funding. Now, you can call that malicious mismanagement of public funds by a cynical political class. You can call it that. A lot of people do. I wouldn't. What I would say is if you look at the way that the public finance management system works, there is no mechanism in southern Sudan right now for any minister to know how much money is in the bank. There is no contract control. This is a government that's four years old. One of the things, Gabby, we got wrong was we didn't focus early enough on public finance management and public administration. So four years down the line, there's no contract control mechanism in place. Now, the ministers who signed those contracts, are they malicious public servants misusing public funds, or are they well-intentioned ministers who are working in a system for which there are no controls? We're not going to know the answer to that question until there's a public finance management system in place. Then, if we have a scandal in a year's time, we know what we're talking about. We're talking about malicious manipulation by public servants. There you go. That's your corruption. Until then, I think it's probably very helpful for us to focus on can we please get public finance management systems in place, get those locked in. Now, in that regard, some of the leadership shown by the office that Liz worked for, the joint donor team, the World Bank, and the UN, we came together at the height of the budget crisis in April, sat down with the government and said, let's have a compact between us, a compact between the international community on the one hand and the government on the other that lays out the top public finance reforms that have to be implemented now, treasury functions, procurement functions, payroll functions, revenue functions. 
There are 22 reforms in that compact. The government fully endorsed it, ran it through cabinet, and is behind it. When those 22 reforms are implemented, if we have something like the scandal we have now, you know what to call it. Until then, I think the more prudent approach, prudent, the more useful approach, is reform public finance. Eyes on the price. Get that done. Now, this is not me trying to whitewash, you know, problems with management of public funds in the South. Absolutely, there are. But to describe that as, you know, a Nigeria or a Congo, it may be a misrepresentation of what we're really looking at. Now, on the question of oil, okay, so you're a country that's been at, or country, I keep saying that, you're a government that's been at war for a long time with the North. You have no idea how the referendum is going to play out. You've got six years during that period. What are you going to do? You're going to make sure that your military forces are strong enough to deal with whatever the consequences are of the national question, which is why the government of southern Sudan is putting the bulk of its oil revenues into the Army. Did we really expect anything else? I mean, every time I get asked this question, I just feel like saying, what really did we expect as an international community? Until the national question is dealt with, the two sides are maintaining readiness militarily. That means that a huge amount of the resources that are available to them have been used in that regard. It is, I believe, completely understandable why that is the case. Would I wish it to be otherwise? Absolutely. I wish that there was free health care for every single kid and parent in that country. I wish every kid could get to school. I would like to see poor farmers receive zero credit. I would love for that money to go somewhere else. But given the context of southern Sudan and the realities of a post-conflict government, without the national question being decided, I think that helps to explain why the funding looks the way it does. Now, all of that being said, we also have to recognize that the actual amount of money they have, I mean, there's this number that keeps floating around that they have a per capita GDP that's similar to Kenya. I rail when I hear that. Kenya has roads and electricity grid and years of infrastructure development for which the GDP number per capita is meaningful. In the case of southern Sudan where you have 200 kilometers of paved road and no electricity grid, you know, and you have a handful of schools and not enough, I mean, this is meaningless to say they're the same as Kenya. No, they're not. Simply getting the road grid, simply getting the road grid that would link the capital of Juba with the 10 state capitals is $17 billion. The electricity grid will be $8 billion. The amount of money they've had during the transition about a billion when oil was higher, almost two billion a year. That's it. Not a lot you can do to make up for all those years of marginalization with that. So that's just to put it into context. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I do not wish to be seen to whitewash or justify the channeling of funds in a way which is inconsistent with the Millennium Development Goals and certainly not to 
provide an excuse for the misuse of public funds. But I do think that in post-conflict countries, we have simply got to be realistic about what it is we're talking about. And I think that's the point. You know, in the UN, many of us that do post-conflict are known as having dirty hands. You know, humanitarians wear white dresses. Development people are, you know, fully clothed in haute couture. And the people in the middle, you know, the ones that do post-conflict, we just have filthy hands because we're doing things like trying to help governments stand up systems, you know, then at the same time as we're forming their army. All this is a mess. It's dirty, dirty work. Okay. I think that was it for that set. I can – now, we're almost out of time, but I think Liz would actually like to hear what you want to ask. You can only give a short, perhaps, summary answer. So very brief, and I'll try to let you have your voice. One. Yes. I have two very short questions. You mentioned corruption on the GOSS level, but I'd also like you to talk about potentially the corruption at the UN level. I know that UNMIS was involved in procurement fraud, and I just want to know if things have improved. You only get one question. Just a very personal question. How do you manage to get up every day? You mentioned the tribal conflicts being one of the main causes of this humanitarian crisis, and I think this kind of asks the question, why are these people murdering their own people and causing all this trouble? What do they actually gain from it, and what are their motivations? Thank you. This gentleman. You talked about the failure of the troops, the UN troops, to act in a forward-thinking and mobile fashion. Operating under a Chapter 7 mandate, surely that doesn't encourage a static deployment model. And I would hypothesize that perhaps the inexperience and ineffectiveness of the troops from the contributing nations is more of a factor, and I'd like your thoughts on that, please. Thank you. This gentleman here. Thank you. In May 2009, there was a report from Oxfam on the future of South Sudan, and last month a new report published by Cordaid giving four possible scenarios for South Sudan after 2012. So this report gives 75 probability, 75 percent for a new war, north and south, on the borderline, small war, and 50 percent, that's 50 percent, sorry, probability, and 75 probability for civil unrest. What's truly your feeling about the future of South Sudan after 2012? Thank you. Thank you. Two more. One here. I was wondering if you could comment on the African Union's involvement, because I know that they are quite involved in Darfur, but I don't know anything about Southern Sudan and whether they are actively involved or not. Thank you. And finally, this gentleman here, he had his hand up for questions. On the question of uh, UN corruption, 
We have what's called OIOS, and I was desperately trying to remember what it stands for. I think it stands for the Office of... Yeah, okay. So, yeah, that's the answer <laughs> to, uh, you know, when um, in, in these very huge bureaucracies, when our own systems break down and, and we don't do what we need to do, we do have this independent body, which you formerly worked for, that investigates these. And I think that um, many of us that are senior managers are grateful that there is a mechanism like that in place to make sure that, that we continue to, to, in fact, discharge our responsibilities and use the public funds that are entrusted to us in a way which meets the expectations of the member states. Um, in terms of, you know, how you get up every day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We just uh, keep going. I think, you know, it's, a, if I may, a, a tremendous honor and privilege to be serving in, in a country where um, a great historic moment is coming. Um, in, in my career, I haven't had that privilege before. I've been um, in places where things weren't going very well. And to be in a country that's about to make a, a very historic decision to have a referendum like this, it's, uh, it's an honor uh, to serve there. And it's, it's very motivating. On um, the, the question of, of intertribal violence, you know, going back to a point that both James and Gabby have made about security sector reform and the brassage of former militia, I, I'd like to leave the following observation on the table. There were a number of militia, what we call OAGs, other armed groups, that during the Civil War were not aligned with the SPLM. They were aligned with Khartoum. And once the peace agreement was signed, those militia were given a choice. They could go up to the north or they could integrate in with the SPLA. Now, that process has not gone perhaps as effectively as we would have hoped. Since January, all of this intertribal violence that we were referring to, there's about a 70 to 80 percent direct correlation between those incidents and the former armed, other armed groups. So one way to characterize what's happening is a failed integration process. The militia aren't being integrated as effectively as had been expected, and one of the residuals of that is a spike in intertribal conflict. That's one way to look at it. There are, of course, a series of historical grievances. There are ongoing conflicts over resources like water and grazing rights that are also impacting this. But one factor we don't want to ignore is the correlation with a failed versage or integration process for these other armed groups. On the question of um, a static model in troop-contributing countries, uh, colleagues may be aware that the way peacekeeping operations work um, is that we have a TCC, that's a troop contributing country, a country decides that they will contribute troops to an operation. They have what's called a TOW, or Terms of Engagement. Now, um, in many cases, peacekeeping operations that will have a number of different contingents, those contingents will all have different TOWs. So, for example, if you're getting troops from South Africa, they'll have one toe that will set the conditions under which their troops will operate. And Zambia will have a different one, and Pakistan will have a third one. So what that means is that the uh, way in which those troops discharge their functions on the ground can vary. Now, one of the things that's a real challenge for the Department of Peacekeeping in New York that 
oversees and manages these large operations is to try and standardize the tows and make them as flexible as possible so that the troops that are actually on the ground work on the basis of the priorities which are set by the force commander. It certainly is an issue. It is very much an issue in UNMIS. Other peacekeeping operations have done a better job at overcoming some of the discrepancies between the tows. I think UNMIS is struggling with that. We're still working through how to make sure that the forces which do make it into Sudan from the TCCs discharge their responsibilities in a way which we would all expect them to do, which are effective. In terms of the scenarios, you know, the U.S. Institute for Peace went through a similar exercise and came up as well with four scenarios. What was interesting about that one is twice a year the government of southern Sudan holds what they call a governor's forum. It's just an extraordinary thing. They invite all of the governors, the cabinet comes, members of the southern Sudan legislative assembly, their parliament come. I mean, basically the whole political class is there, plus international observers. All of us are allowed to come. And for usually three or four days, sometimes up to a week, they debate the great matters of state and public administration with us sitting there. Now, they just had a governor's forum in August. And at the governor's forum, the U.S. Institute for Peace's four scenarios, which are similar to the ones you described, were presented. And the southern Sudanese entire political class debated the implications of these scenarios, including the possibility that they may continue to fight internally in the south, that there may be a war with the north and so forth. It was just a remarkable example of real-time public democracy that was being played out with all of us participating. I think there is a real concern that we certainly don't want the CPA to collapse. It's so close to being finished. There are a number of tensions that might lead to that. I would hold one thought, which is that I don't think either the north or the south want to go back to war. I don't think there's a hunger for war. I think that there are a number of very positive vectors during the transition. For example, they have managed to split oil in a peaceful, the wealth-sharing aspects of the CPA. Both sides acknowledge that those have been implemented in harmony and to great effect. I don't think either side wants to go to war. I think that the international community is all pulling in a positive way to prevent that worst-case scenario. I don't think it will happen. I think that there will be a peaceful resolution after the southern Sudanese decide how they wish to go. I honestly believe that. I don't think that the tensions pulling toward an outbreak of intense conflict will prevail. On the question of the AU involvement, they are, of course, with the UN, part of the peacekeeping operation in Darfur. That is not the case in UNMIS, in southern Sudan. They are, however, a very important part of the international community. I would say you could even describe them as a center of gravity. Depending upon how the southern Sudanese vote, if they do vote for independence, how that's done, what kind of arrangement would follow on from that, is something that the African Union is following very closely, using its good offices to provide advice on. Their counsel is very steady and very mature, and I know that the southern Sudanese appreciate it very much. On 
Yeah, the BBC World Service. You know, I really do have to compliment you guys because it is absolutely true that, you know, when no one else was paying attention, you know, your teams really were fantastic. And I think that it was in part because of the way that you forward leaned on this that Southern Sudan is moving up the agenda. Honestly, we, we are, you know, huge fans and incredibly grateful for that. Let me thank you very much. It's a wonderful opportunity for me.